Well, if you weren't here last weekend, we began this new series called Transformed, a series focused on the book of Philippians, an incredible, beautiful book that Paul wrote. We're going to take a look at it starting today, actually. But last week, we took a look specifically on what it looks like to be transformed by the Spirit. What that means for us is that we as Christians, as followers of Christ, would position ourselves in such a way, wait on God in such a way that He would speak to us, that we'd give Him room to speak to us, and that when the Spirit speaks to us, that we would follow His promptings in our lives. I remember first seeing this in the life of my father. When I was about 12 or 13 years old, I remember my father really going after God. I remember him in the living room. He would be there in that chair, that one chair, that olive green ugly chair. And he'd be sitting there and he'd be praying. He'd be reading the Bible. And then he would just wait. Wait on God to speak to him. Well, I remember one Sunday morning, we went to church. Like It was like any other Sunday morning. But he went and he was standing in the lobby. And he felt the Holy Spirit prompting him to walk up to this elderly woman in our church named Mrs. Cornell and ask her if there's anything he could do to help her. And so that's exactly what he did. He walked up, asked her that question. She said, you know what? I have been praying for someone to ask me that. Yes, I could really use your help. Could you come over, you know, every single week and cut my lawn? She says, it's, it's much too large for me to handle. I can't do this any longer. So could you cut my lawn for me? And right there on the spot, my father committed to every single Saturday morning coming over and cutting her lawn, which of course meant that I was going to be coming over every Saturday morning and cutting her lawn. That's exactly what it meant. Because I remember my father coming home and he was so excited. Boy, God was speaking to me and, and he led me to this woman and she needs her lawn cut. And so this is exciting, Phil. And he's trying to sell me on this. You know, God showed this to me. And I thought, you know what? God didn't speak to me. Okay. I did not hear this. In fact, I'm getting a very different kind of message altogether. And so in my bitterness that next Saturday, we drove over to her house. And this large lawn, I thought, what did he get me into? And we drove up. She lived in a mobile home park. Her lawn was only maybe 15 feet wide or so by 20 feet or so. It was small. It only took me about 10 minutes to cut and trim that every single Saturday. And so, frankly, Saturday mornings wasn't really about cutting her lawn. It was about what happened after I cut her lawn, put the lawnmower away, and I'd walk inside of her mobile home. We'd sit around her kitchen table there. She'd always have milk and cookies, I remember. And Mrs. Cornell would tell me about her life. She'd tell me about her long-standing faith, about all the trials that she faced in her life, how God had proved himself faithful over and over again. And as I learned more about Mrs. Cornell every single Saturday morning for those several years, I learned how beautiful she was. Because her life was overflowing with fruit, beautiful fruit. God had used her to touch the lives of so many people, including myself. And I'll never forget Mrs. Cornell. Never forget her. Well, as we open up the pages of Philippians, Paul here is, is, is writing and he's describing what a beautiful, mature church looks like. And what mature Christians like Mrs. Cornell actually do as a result of their mature faith, as a result of the fruit pouring out of their lives. He writes to this church beautifully. Unlike the other churches he writes to, many times he's writing to them and he's saying, you know what? Stop doing this, you know, and start doing that, you know, stop talking this way and start talking that way. 
Basically, he's saying, grow up. But not so with the Philippians. They're special to him. They're beautiful to him because they're living out what a true community transformed by the gospel actually looks like. And so it shouldn't surprise us then that he begins writing this beautiful book by writing these words. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here it's Paul's desire for the entire church, leaders of the church and congregants alike, to experience God's grace and God's peace. I like how Paul orders that because, you see, it's impossible to experience God's peace without first encountering God's grace. kind of looks like this. No grace, no peace. No Jesus, no peace. Do you know his peace today? Are you walking in his peace? Or is there a storm going on inside of you? If there is, perhaps it's because you haven't fully taken a hold of his grace that's available for you. Sometimes we get into this idea that we've got to work ourselves up to God, be good enough in order to please him before he'll finally adopt us as a child. And that's a false notion. His grace, he offers it freely to anyone who would respond to him in saving faith and ask for forgiveness. His grace is here, and grace then leads to peace. And so now, Paul clearly has established you know, who he's writing to, who his audience is, and now he establishes his heart for that audience. Now, if you're here last weekend, we talked about how Paul planted this church in Philippi. Now, it had been, I want you to think about this now, as he's writing this letter we're taking a look at, it had been a decade, at least a decade of time had passed since he had seen Lydia and planted the church with her there, and that paid public servant, that Roman guard. Ten years had passed And while time had passed, his love for them had only grown. And now shackled in Roman chains, some 800 miles away, Paul emphatically writes, I thank my God every time I remember you. I thank my God every time I remember you. I think we've got to stop there and kind of ask ourselves some questions. When, When you're living your life, When you're at work during the week, and during your work you happen to think about the church here, what do you do? Or when you're mowing your grass at home, and you happen to think perhaps about what I might have said in a sermon or something, what do you do? Or when you're driving in traffic, you get caught, you know, and and you're stuck there, and you're not moving, and you happen to think about the worship that you experienced this past week and you took part in, what do you do? See, Paul tells us that every single time he thought of the people in that church, he gave God thanks for them. So the question for us is this. Have you and I nurtured the kinds of hearts needed to produce thankfulness at the mere thought of one another? And I want to say as your pastor, let's be about that. Let's give God thanks every opportunity we have for one another when we're not even together. That as we think about this church, we say, oh God, thank you for Josh. For his leadership. Thank you for Jen. Thank you for my small group leader. Thank you for the people in this church. Let's live in this way. Giving God thanks for each other. This is what Paul does. It's precisely why Paul continues by writing. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. You hear that? He's talking about his prayers. Now, when it comes to this word prayer, we kind of think about it as an urgent request to meet a need. That's why we pray. 
You see, the needs of the Philippians were so much on Paul's heart and on his mind, it drove him to his knees. He couldn't help himself. He had to pray for that church over and over and over again, even in the midst of all of his pain. Fast forward 2,000 years and studies show this, that of Christians who pray, 95% of Christians pray and thank God for what he's done in their lives. Of those Christians who pray, 76% ask for forgiveness for things that they've done. 67% spend time in prayer worshiping God. 61% ask for God's help regarding some kind of need that they have. And 47% are silent during prayer in order just to hear and respond to him. Something I asked for you to do this past week. I hope that you did. But of all these stats that we see here, do you notice something missing? Where are the prayers for other people? It seems that if Christians do pray, and many don't really pray other than at their meal or at bedtime, but when they do pray, either they're giving God thanks or they're asking for more things for themselves. But they spend far less time, if any, actually praying for other people. And Paul here serves as a model for how we are to be. We are to constantly be in prayer for one another. In fact, he says, I pray for all of you. See, it didn't matter who you were in the life of that church, how old you were, young you were, what your status was. If you were part of that church, Paul was praying for you. And how often? Always. Paul continuously gave God thanks for them. How is your prayer life? How often are you praying for those here Paul prayed continuously, and how did he do so? Well, with joy, he says, with joy. In fact, he mentions joy here. This is the first of 14 times that this word joy will show up in this letter. In fact, if you're going to take a look at the theme of Philippians, I think you could sum up the entire book in this one three-letter word, joy. Because whenever Paul thought of the church, his life overflowed with joy upon joy upon joy. So what emotion comes to your mind when you think of the church family here? It's my hope that when you think about the people here at MCC, your heart will overflow with joy, friends. Not because joy is expected of you. And not because joy is the best possible outcome we should pursue. And not because you're going to get a gold star if your heart overflows with it. But as Paul states, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel From the first day until now. He always prayed with joy because of their partnership that they shared in what? The gospel. That's what gave him joy, what they were partners in. Gave him joy. First lesson, the gospel is the center of Christian community. The gospel is the center of Christian community. You see, Paul is filled with joy because of their partnership. Now, we tend to think of partnership in business terms, right? We kind of strike a deal, we shake hands, we sign a document, and now we're in partnership with one another. Paul had something much deeper going on here. In fact, the Greek word that lies behind the word partnership is this word called koinonia. Repeat after me, koinonia. Say it with passion, koinonia. That is what we are to share in, koinonia partnership. And the word koinonia, it means intimacy. It means the complete sharing of everything with each other, friends. Paul is talking here about the deepest form of human relationships. This koinonia love he had for the church and the church had for him. That's why in his own letter he writes that they prayed for him in his affliction because of their koinonia partnership. 
They suffered like him for their own faith in Christ because of their koinonia partnership in the gospel. They joined with him through the radiant witness of Jesus Christ because of the koinonia partnership they shared in the gospel. And they supported him financially so that he could bring the mission to fruition. And they showed him such sacrificial koinonia love, koinonia partnership because of what their partnership entailed. They gave of everything that they had, sometimes even of their own lives, because of the grand importance of the gospel. And to this i got to ask, what is the gospel? We hear this word gospel, but what is it? If somebody came up to you this week and said, you know, what is the gospel? I've heard about this. What is it? How would you answer them? See, a person is not going to be willing to give of their possessions, even of their own lives, for something they don't understand. It's important to know what the gospel is because, after all, the Philippian church, they were partners in the gospel, which means we are partners in the gospel. So what is the gospel? Well, take a look. The gospel is that there is this infinite, almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful creator God who created all things for his glory. And you and I have belittled that, belittled his name, belittled his glory Every one of us have at one time or another, or actually currently, believed that our way is better than God's. We fail to acknowledge, give Him glory for the gifts He's given us. We question His rule and His authority, while at the same time doing that with the brain He gave us and holds together, and the lungs and the air that He gave us to breathe with. This is the great blasphemy of the universe. So we've all belittled God, and God being just right and holy is not going to allow the belittlement of his name. God then, not being able to spare wrath, sends Christ in the flesh and crushes him. And in so doing, pours out his wrath against the children of God onto the Son, killing him. Then God raises him from the dead. And that same power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in those who would believe. This is the gospel. That you and I have right standing before God. Not by our efforts, not by our works, not by our skill, not by whether or not we cuss or don't cuss, drink or don't drink, watch this, don't watch this, do this, don't do that. Justified before God by the cross of Christ alone. Your lust... You're not going to be able to fix it. Your bitterness, you're not going to be able to fix it. Your rage, anger, those deviances that have been following you around. You don't possess the power of life and death. You can't resurrect anything. Christ came. That's the good news. That's why we don't celebrate us. That's why we continually celebrate him. We boast in the cross and the cross alone. The same power that is at work in raising Christ from the dead, at work in me and work in all who believe. This is the gospel. Isn't that powerful? And knowing what the gospel is gives us confidence, friends. It gives us purpose. This was not the only confidence that Paul had, however, because he beautifully wrote... Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And this, friends, is one of the most powerful, beautiful, well-known verses in the entire Bible. 
He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We love that verse because it seems to apply, right? That, that, that God, since God saved me, he's going to complete what he started in me. We tend to think about it as just kind of between me and God. And the reality is it's like a beautiful lesson for us. But Paul had something much bigger, grander in mind. In fact, in order to understand it, we're in verse 6 now. You're going to go back to verse 5. Paul talked about this koinonia partnership that everyone shared. It was an us thing. And when he talked about this, their koinonia love was being threatened on all sides by those outside the church. They were trying to do in the church and even by some within the church itself. And even so, Paul said he was confident He was confident that he who began this good work in you, not you or you or you, but you being all of us, he who began a good work in all of us will complete it until the day that Christ comes back. And what's this work he begins in all of us? It's the beautiful work he started in us with the gospel. The gospel. And once he starts this work in us, he's going to bring it to fruition, which means more and more people are going to come to saving faith and the church will expand. And that's why Paul was so confident because they were not about themselves. They were not about casually showing up for worship if it fit in. They were about the gospel. Paul was confident. He was confident because the gospel cannot be stopped by man's opinion, nor by any socioeconomic, racial, or religious walls. The gospel cannot be stopped by politicians, by any court, or by any culture that denies Christ his truth. The gospel defies all the odds, race, class, and even the status of any person who tries to shut it down. Friends, nothing can stop the transformational work our Father began and initiated with the gospel. It's that essential, friends. The gospel is here. We know what it is. Because it is the hope that we can give the world when we have it on our lips. And yet, what do we talk about? When we leave church afterwards, we kind of get some coffee afterwards, kind of hang out. What's on our lips? What do we talk about? The game last night, perhaps, the weather outside, which is pretty beautiful today. You know, our careers and how we're doing, how our children are, the new car that we bought or the old car that's in the shop. Friends, we need to focus on what's most important, friends, the centrality of the gospel. If it's not on our lips, it's not in our hearts. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ was firmly rooted in the heart of the Philippian church, however. And that's why the work started within them as a church, as a partnership, as a koinonia, would most certainly find its completion in the very moment that Christ returned for them. Because their church in Philippi would expand. It would be even more beautiful than it was when Paul left them. And this, friends, is why Paul wrote... It is right for me to feel this way about all of you. He's encouraging them. It's right for me to think positively about you. In fact, there wasn't a negative thought in his mind as he thought about that church. How do you think about others in this church? Paul clearly defines here, really, there's two ways to think. Either, of course, we can not think the best of each other. We can, you know, doubt somebody and their motivation, whatever's going on with them. And still kind of worship with them. Or 
we can celebrate them. We can believe in them because of what we're in this together for. The purpose of the gospel. See, Paul was focused on the latter. He was completely focused to thinking the best of one another. And so I want to ask, are you? Are you thinking constantly the best of the person behind you, beside you, in front of you? And if you are, this is the right way to think according to Paul. In fact, since he was focused on thinking positively about him, them, his heart could not help but overflow for them. And this is what koinonia love, koinonia partnership, friends, it's all about. And this is why Paul continued to write. Since I have you in my heart, whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Paul mentions his chains. His chains. He mentions them here in verse 7. He mentions them again in verse 13 and verse 14 and verse 17. See, these very chains that bound him to his guard, restricted his movement, and caused his skin to break open and bleed were the very chains that actually freed him to do something more. It's astounding. Let me ask you, what are you bound by? What prison do you find yourself in? In the midst of the pain you might be living in? See, what Paul, I think, is trying to teach us is this, that as Christians, the question is not if we're going to experience pain in this life. The question is this, where will we focus our minds in the midst of the pain? In order to experience joy in the midst of his pain, Paul focused on others. Not himself, not his chains, not, not this cave-like setting he was in, not the Roman guard that was beside him, but he focused on others. And as a result, Paul's chains served as a blessing to him. Well, they restricted his impact from a human perspective. They increased his impact from a spiritual perspective. And as a result, others heard about the gospel that might never have heard if those chains had not bound him. In that sense, I kind of think about my father. I remember him coming home from work that day, and I just thought it was, you know, he was home because he wasn't feeling well. He'd been badly injured. He never worked again. He was disabled for the rest of his life from the time I was 10. For the first couple years, my father would wrap himself in a ball. He would cry out in pain and anger and bitterness. He'd kind of yell at everyone else in the family. He focused in on himself. He experienced no joy at all in the midst of everything he was facing. And then he kind of turned it around. He realized what Paul was writing here. And he realized that his chains of pain in his life could be used. They were an opportunity for him. And so instead of staying inside the home, he he went outside the home. And he's supposed to walk with two canes. Most often too proud to do that so he'd only walk with one. But I'll tell you what, he impacted the life of children because he had time that he might never have had otherwise. He shared the gospel with people in the grocery store, at the bank. He had all these opportunities because of the very chains of pain that bound him in some way and yet freed him to share the gospel. You see, like Paul, my father allowed his chains to help him focus on others and not himself. And this is why Paul wrote, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. He speaks here of the affection he has for them, the love he has for them. In fact, his love was so strong, so radiant. He said that God could give testimony of it. And how far, how deep did his affection go? 
Well, the same level of affection that led Christ to his arrest, torture, and death is the same level of affection that Paul has for every member in that church. And Paul was so confident of his affection, he said that God could give testimony of it. So let me ask you, what might God's testimony be about you when it comes to your prayers and your thoughts of others here? Would he testify of your devoted prayers for your brothers and sisters here? Would he testify of your devoted prayers mostly for yourself? Would he testify that few prayers are actually prayed at all? What would God's testimony be? Paul knew what God's testimony would be. It would be that he prayed for them constantly. He couldn't help himself. See, Paul was going to take the opportunity to tell them himself now instead of wait for God to give testimony. He wanted them to know. And so he continued to write. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. His prayer, that their love would abound, how? Not in emotion, not in feeling, right? But in what? Knowledge and depth of insight. That's interesting. See, the second lesson here is this. The gospel is the center of Christian prayers. The gospel is the center of Christian prayers. You see, the prayer that that Paul prayed for this church is the same kind of prayer we need to pray for one another. We need to pray that the more we grow in the knowledge of God's word, the more we grow in the knowledge of the gospel, the more our love will overflow for those both inside the church and outside the church. And people then will hear about the gospel because our love is overflowing as we grow more in knowledge. That's interesting. We don't seem to tie love with knowledge all that much. And so what is Paul saying here? Well, when we come to understand what God's actually saying, it changes the way that we think. And studies out there show that what I think determines how I feel. And how I feel determines how I act. And so the more knowledge and insight we have regarding the gospel, friends the more his love will abound within us, friends. We're going to impact this world if we pray for this to happen. That together as a church, we can make impact in this world in ways we've never imagined before. But this will only be possible if our knowledge grows in such a way that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless. That our love will overflow If we're pure and blameless, is what Paul says. Paul's talking here about testing. See, just like wine needs to be tested for fermentation, and a coin needs to be tested for authenticity, so too must our love be tested to make sure it meets God's standards. And what's God's standard here? It's purity. Purity. Now, purity in the Greek carries with it this idea. It's a testing that takes place by light of the sun. A testing that takes place by light of the sun. What in the world does that mean? It means that his light shines so brightly on us as a church. His light shines so brightly on us that it exposes everything. It exposes what's beautiful. It exposes what we try to hide. It even exposes, of course, what's imperfect. And when his light shines that brightly and exposes everything, it gives us the opportunity to do away with the things that we hide, to do away with our imperfections so that we, the church, can stand pure and blameless. Pure and blameless, not just for a short period of time, but until the day of Christ. Pure and blameless until the day he comes back for us. 
See, friends, when true love abounds in community and the church is transformed in community, it is properly prepared for its bridegroom to return. And as his bride, we are to pray that we will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. The fruit of righteousness. Here, I want you to think about this. Paul envisions that church. He envisions our church overflowing with fruit of righteousness. The idea that we would be a beautiful orchard overflowing with fruit that's produced from our relationship with the very river of life, Jesus Christ. See, Mrs. Cornell, she was beautiful. And as I looked at her, she was overflowing the fruit of righteousness. She looked like this. This was her life. And it was beautiful. Is that you? Is that you? Is your life overflowing with fruit of righteousness? And you ask, well, how would I know? How would I know? Well, your life will be so transformed that you'll overflow with fruit of compassion for others. Fruit of pure motives. Fruit of humility in your relationships with other people. You don't need to be right. And as Paul is writing here, you'll overflow with fruit of witness. That you'll point others to the very river that gave you life, Jesus Christ. That's how you'll know. But in a fuller sense, Paul is saying here that together we'll be joined in community as collectively we display the fruit of compassion, pure motives, humility, and witness. So that together we all point others to the very river that gave us life, Jesus Christ. And that means... That we know what the gospel is. And because we know what the gospel is, we can't help ourselves. It's in our hearts, so it has to be on our lips. We'll be speaking of the gospel, friends, not for our own glory, but, as Paul writes, to the glory and praise of God, to Him. That's why we share the gospel. See, I think Paul's trying to let us know this, that if you want forgiveness for your past, life for today, and hope for tomorrow... Be transformed in community by what? The gospel. The gospel. It's in our hearts. So therefore, it's on our lips. And together, we transform this world because of the grand importance of the gospel. I want to introduce you uh, this morning to two people within our own church setting here who have been transformed by the gospel, that their lives were impacted by the gospel in some way. And as a result, you know what? If it's in your heart, it's on your lips. You can't help yourself. And so I want to introduce you to Kelly. And this is London. And uh, they are part of our epic ministry. Let's welcome them this morning and thank them for coming. And as uh, their mics are walking across the uh, platform here, um, I, I just want to let you know, first of all, Kelly is, is one of the first people I met here at MCC. Before I even came here to speak, I met her father and her. Uh, they were on vacation. And uh, so Kelly is kind of like a daughter to me. Uh, and she's just wonderful. You'll come to see that. London, I actually met on Easter Sunday. I might have seen you before. I don't know. But uh, she introduced herself to me on Easter. And I thought, you know what? We've got to tell this story. So I want to start with, with Kelly, you, and I go back three years ago. And three years ago, where were you spiritually? Tell us about that. Uh, the mic needs to be turned on, apparently. Somebody turned it off. Um, I 
was going to this church frequently. I grew up in this church, um, and I had seen and heard about what people had thought about about Christ. I knew there was a God. I believed everything that was here, but um, I had never felt the true joy that I had been told about. Um, And a friend of mine convinced me to go to a camp in Indiana called Spring Hill. And there at that camp, I experienced the love, the companionship, the relationship with Christ that I had so badly wanted and desired. And I accepted Christ that week. Awesome. So three years ago, you came to Christ. You were a follower. So London, three years ago, where were you spiritually? Well, I knew that there was a God up there somewhere, but I didn't really know him or Jesus. I didn't know what went into that at all. Um, When I was younger, I used to go to church at Crossroads, and then our family has been so busy and schedules, and we just didn't go, and I've started to go. And that's a different story we'll get into a little later. (laughs) So, So, Kelly, then, you came to Saving Faith. And, and yet you've known London since you were kids, right? So you've been friends for a long time. So how did your faith now in Christ impact your thoughts in terms of your relationship with London? As soon as I accepted Christ, I knew that with the passion and the happiness that London is fulfilled with, that if she was to see the God that I see, the God that I feel when I wake up in the morning, that her heart would be set on fire for Christ. And so that night, as soon as I accepted Christ, I prayed for London, and I prayed with this friend who brought me to camp, and we said, you know, God, we just laid it out for him. Like, we want her so bad. Maybe it's not on our time, but we want you to show up in her life. Wonderful. So it began by praying for her. Your heart of love for her, you started praying for her, as we heard Paul doing. And now, now then, what happened next? Because for us, you know, we have a heart for somebody, we pray for that person, and yet, in your relationship, probably some things changed, right, in terms of how you related with each other. What, what happened there? How did that show up? I would just slightly and conveniently slide Christ into conversation every now and then and ask her questions. Um, And eventually we had a sleepover at her house, and I just still remember, like, in her room, we were for hours talking, and she was asking questions, and she was so curious, and you could see Jesus in her, like, and she just kept asking questions, and I kept saying, God, help me answer these to the best of my ability, and she, I said, we went over baptism, we went over accepting Christ, and at the end of that night, I said, do you want to accept Christ? And (laughs) it was like... Yes, I do. And from then on, I saw the world so much differently. Um, It's amazing what accepting Christ can do to your life. So when it comes to Christ then, London, tell us then, you know, you were talking about how God, you you knew there was a God somewhere out there, right? And, uh, And now you've come to know Christ. So who is Christ to you now? He's a relationship. I have a new friend. Jesus is always there with you every day, every every second. And what he done, did on the cross is so mind-blowing because he forgives us every single day. And we're not even worthy of it, but he loves us unconditionally. So now I just, I love life so much more. I see it so differently. And it's because I think, as you share with me in my office, because you're following Jesus more and more. In fact, so much a couple weeks ago, right, you were baptized uh, over at our student center there. Can you run that video a second? And here is London 
Getting baptized. That is me. Who's that person baptizing you? Uh, that's my small group leader, uh, Heather Hubbard. She's awesome. And who's this person greeting you at the bottom of the steps? Uh, I think that would be Kelly. You, yeah, there she <laughs> there is. There you go. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> um. So, Kelly, tell us, every person here has got a London in their life. Every person, they work with them, they know them, they might be in their family, they got a London in their life. What would you say to them in terms of, you know, reaching out to them? How might they do that? What would be the steps? You know, I'd say first, just lay it down for Christ every single day. Because um, just pour out your heart to him and show him how much you want, whoever this person is, to see what you see and to desire and to have that relationship that you have. Um, and just the biggest thing to take from it is that God doesn't work on our time. Um, I think that's the best thing I've ever been taught in my whole entire life, that three years later, when London comes up from the water, like, <laughs> like the joy that was in my soul that I experienced was just a feeling that I have never felt in my whole life before. So lay it down for Christ. Pray for, him, pray for that person every single day. Um, and then after that, like, bring things into conversation. Have that conversation that occasionally you just ask questions and they will, God works in good ways. They'll have that curiosity. I think you did one other thing as well with London. You kind of brought her into the midst of the church. Yeah. Um, and then if they continue to be curious, just surround them with people that like in the community that love and experience Christ as you had, like show them that community and that love that it's not just you who feels this desire for Christ, that it's those around us as well. Awesome. Can we thank Kelly and London here this morning? Awesome. awesome. Let's stand together. Let's stand. Dear Father, we thank you for your incredible love for us. God, we thank you that out of your love for us, you sent us your son because we needed a savior. We were lost in our sin. As a result, Jesus, you came, you died for us, you rose for us so that we could know life. And so we thank you for the power of the gospel. Many here have experienced that already. We're walking with Jesus. And for those who may have not yet crossed the line, I pray by your spirit you would just keep calling them, drawing them to yourself. They'd come to to know you and follow you. Know the blessing of a relationship with you, we pray. And now, Lord, for each one of us here, I pray for the London in our lives. Lord, I pray right now specifically that you would put a person's face in the minds of each one, a London that they have in their own lives, whether it's somebody that they work with, somebody in their own family, somebody that lives on the street with them. And now, Lord, I pray as we walk out these doors today that we won't leave here going, well, that was, that was really nice things that Paul wrote there. That, that was beautiful. And, and that we went we walk out of here thinking, well, that was just a wonderful story. I heard those, those girls share But Lord, because of the gospel, because the gospel binds us together, we are rooted in it. This is what our community is about, that we would go out of here because the gospel is so in our hearts that it would be on our lips. And so, Lord, give us wisdom. Give us humility. Lord, lead us in the right conversations we need to have. And it starts, I think, by praying for the London in our lives. But help us to leave this place realizing who we are. That we're sons and daughters of you, our most high God, because of your love for us. We're part of your family. 
And we're part of your family because of the beauty and the power of the gospel. So help us go out these doors now. And as we encounter the London in our lives, help us to love them, pray for them, engage in conversation with them, and hopefully even bring them into the community here so that they can come to see what a community of faith, what a family of God actually looks like. Lord, use us in ways we've never seen before. And as Paul writes, not to our glory, but to your glory alone. We pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Go out. Let's impact our world. I'll see you next weekend.